So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I've really got two passages in my head at the moment. One is Philippians chapter 2, and the other is from 1 John. I think I'll read them both to you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then, although I'm not sure whether we will get to it, but I'd like to read to you 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we are pursuing the theme of the greatness of salvation. But as I was saying yesterday, I'm especially concerned with what I would call the second phase of salvation. If you were here last night, you know what I mean by that. Scripture puts salvation in phases, in stages quite distinct stages. It says that we have been saved. And that is given to us. We've got it. It's a definite, accomplished stage in our life. We're not going to lose it. We'll never go back on it. It's a foundation. And that foundation is firm. No other foundation can be laid. Then upon that basis, we're told to work out our salvation. And and we have verses like 1 Corinthians 1.18, we are being saved. We are as it were, getting this salvation to to work and to achieve things. We're laying hold of eternal life, as Paul said to Timothy. And then there's a third stage, when we are finally rescued from sin altogether. We never sin again when we get get to a final glory. We're given our resurrection body, and we'll never sin. And it's on that occasion we're given our reward. Resurrection is connected with reward in Scripture. It's when we are in the body, the raised body, that we are judged. We're judged in the body for the deeds done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5. And our reward comes to us in resurrection glory. And and there's variation in glory. One star differs from another star in glory, so it is in the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. There's variation of final reward. So uh, the final stage of salvation is the resurrection of the body and our, our final inheritance And again, it's quite distinct. And when the Bible says things like, those who endure to the end shall be saved, 
it doesn't, it doesn't mean, it can't possibly mean those who endure to the end will be born again, or those who endure to the end will be justified, or those who endure to the end will become children of God. We, 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 we can't possibly say a thing like that. That we've got already, and we are not going to lose it. So when the Bible says those who endure to the end will be saved, it, it means we get to our final reward. We're finally rescued from all sin, and we're given our heavenly reward. And when you use a phrase like once saved, always saved, sometimes we use that as a kind of slogan, once saved, always saved, you, you need to know what you mean. You don't mean once saved, inevitably rewarded. It doesn't mean that. It is possible to be saved but lose the reward. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, uh, our works get uh, tested by fire. If any person's works are burned up, he shall suffer loss, says 1 Corinthians chapter 3, though he himself shall be saved, even though he suffers loss, his, his, his original, initial, foundational salvation is not lost. You may say, what's it like to be saved through fire? My answer, why do you want to know? I mean, I mean, I mean what, do you need to know what's it like to be saved by fire? We don't know. But uh, there's such a thing as being saved but losing your heavenly reward. If you ask, what's it, what is it like? I don't think we know. And... Uh, why, why should we want to know? We, we don't, we're not, no one's ambitious to uh, be saved through fire, I hope. And uh, if you say to me, well, as long as I'm saved, that's all I care about, I answer, you might say that now, but you will not say that then. If you ever get to final glory and you've lost your reward, you, you will want to come back and, and have a second chance, but, but there'll be no such thing. You can't come back, as it were, and relive your life. It, it, it'll be finished, and you would have lost something. You would have lost something forever. And uh, so it would be a serious thing to, be, to, to lose reward in final judgment day. But Scripture talks about that. It says some people shrink in shame. Abide in him lest, so that you don't shrink in shame at his coming. Some, some Christians will not want Jesus to come, according to 1 John chapter 3. So there are these stages of salvation. And I'm especially wanting to, to share with you this, this middle stage, laying hold of salvation, working out your salvation, and so on. And uh, I'm trying to get my, my mind around it myself, and I'm also trying to, to share it with you. So I was saying last night that uh, the starting point is to have a good foundation. You, you, you can't press on uh, laying hold of eternal life. You can't work out your salvation unless you're sure that you are saved. You can't work something out until you know you've got it. You, you must have a good starting point. And we were thinking about that yesterday. And we're given a good starting point. We have died to sin. We have died to the Mosaic law. We are never going to be condemned. We, we, we're not going to die. He who believes in me shall never die. Well, what happens to us at the end of our life well, other people might call it dying, but it's not really dying. We're not coming under the, the wages of sin, which is death. Even, even when our life comes to an end, it's not really dying. He who believes in me will never die, says, said Jesus um, in, in, the, in the event concerning Lazarus. And uh, we are not in this world. We've died to the world. We're not in the flesh. The flesh is still around. We can still be tempted. Satan is, uh, is still around, but, but we're not under him. We're not in his kingdom. We have a totally new position. We, we, the, old, the person we used to be no longer exists. Remember how Paul actually contradicts himself at one point. He says, it is no longer I who live, 
And then the next sentence he says, the life that I now live, he actually contradicts himself. He, see, he says, I, I, I'm not alive anymore, I'm finished, I'm dead, I, it's no longer I. And the life that I now live, he totally contradicts himself within one sentence. But uh, the explanation is, there's a new I. The person that you used to be, he's no longer in existence. He does not exist. That person has died. And you, you, that person died and you were raised again, but the person who was raised was a, was a new person, a new I, a new kingdom, a new, a new realm. I sometimes put it like this. Imagine that I, that I had a heart attack here in front and I, and I, and I collapsed and died. And then five minutes later, I'm raised from the dead. Only when I'm raised from the dead, I'm not in St. Albans, I'm in New York. That would be cheaper on the airfares, wouldn't it? But uh, imagine when, when, you, when you, you die and you're raised again. But when you're raised again, you're not even in the same place. You're in a different country, a different realm, a different regime. You're, you're a thousand, thousands of miles away. Something like that, that happens to you when you're saved. You die. And you're raised again. But when you're raised again, you're not in the same position or the same place. You're not the same person. There's a totally new person. If any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Something's been created which was not there before. Creation in the Bible is creation out of nothing, creation without any pre-existing materials. There are things there that just simply didn't exist before. You are totally a new person in a new realm. And that's our starting point. And uh, you, you never really will get anywhere in living the Christian life until you know who you are and, and the newness of your position. Are you a new person, a new man, a new woman in the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not struggling to get saved. You are saved. You're working out this new position that you're in. So that's the, the, the starting point. And I, I wouldn't want to go on to, uh, to uh, talk about working out your salvation until, until you've got that. You must know that you've got your foundation you are in the race. You are on the foundation. You are belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be brought to glory. That, that, that's all fixed and settled and certain, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't even have to be worrying about it. If you are worrying about it, then I would say to you, don't worry about pressing on with salvation. Begin with your foundation. Make sure your foundation, don't try and build anything until you've, you've got the foundation, until you know that you are a child of God, until you know that you're in Christ. You know that you're a new creature. Don't, don't even try to work out your salvation until you know that you've got the foundation. There are many people who are trying to be Christians, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not accusing anybody here, but uh, there are many people who are trying to be Christians when they haven't become Christians. Hundreds of people in the churches are struggling to be Christians. But the question is, are they born again? I've been, over the last uh, year or so, I've been... Uh, Studying mysticism and, and the and the uh, and the monks, I've been reading all sorts of weird guys uh, for the last year or so. At the moment, I'm reading Saint Hildegard of Bingen. Have you ever heard of Saint Hildegard of Bingen? You can get to heaven without ever having heard of her. But uh, she's some weird weird lady in Germany who uh, is a mystic sort of lady. She wrote to Bernard of Clairvaux on one occasion, and uh, when she was sixty, she wandered all over. Germany preaching. She was a strange lady. But uh, you get these mystics. Pseudo, you've probably never heard of them. Pseudo Dionysius, and uh, the most well known one is Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a good guy. And you get these weird guys. But uh, when you study these guys who are trying to sink into God, and they're very ascetic, 
and they discipline themselves and they try to sort of lash themselves and sort of control their sensuality and all the rest of it. You feel that they're trying to be Christians before they've become Christians. They're trying to work out their salvation, but they have no, no assurance of salvation. This, this particular lady, uh, St. Hildegard, wrote a letter to Bear, can I read it to you? To Bear, to, to Bernard, St. Bernard in uh, Clairvaux in France. And she wrote to him and said that she'd never felt that she was saved. Let me try and uh, pick out that phrase. She started having visions when she was three years old. I've seen great wonders since I was a child. But then she says, since I was a child, I've never felt secure, not for a single hour. Imagine being a famous saint, and yet all your life you've never felt secure, not for a single hour. And many of these mystics were like it. They're sort of seeking God and so on, trying to find the Lord. And uh, these mystics are very popular. I, I Sometimes when I'm in UK, I was there the other day, I sometimes pop into the Anglican bookshop next to Westminster Abbey, and you can see all these mystic writings there. And you dip into these guys. None of them are very sure of their salvation. They're all sort of struggling, and they have these weird visions, and they worship Mary and all these things. But they're, they're trying to be Christians, very sincere people, but they're trying to be Christians when they, they haven't found any assurance. They've got, they're not building on anything. They're struggling in order to get saved, and they're, they're disciplining themselves. Luther tried it. In 1516, Luther tried to turn to the mystics to find salvation. He was seeking salvation. He was a lecturer in Bible at Wittenberg. He hadn't really come to assurance yet, and he, he uh, dabbled with the German mystics and um, published one of them in 1516. But they never gave him any assurance of salvation. And later on in his life, he, he dropped all these guys. And he once said of one of them, what was his name? Bonaventura, another mystic. He said that guy almost drove, drove me insane when I was trying to follow his way. And he, he, he just dismissed the whole lot. That's, that's one reason why Reformed people are very anti-charismatic. The reason why Reformed people don't like the baptism of the Spirit and they're scared of tongues and all this is because back in their, in their history, they knew all these guys trying to sort of charismatically discover the Lord, and it didn't work. That's why, that's why to this day, they're a bit anti-experiential. But my point is, don't try to get to know God if you haven't got the foundation. The foundation is you are justified by faith without works. You are totally accepted by the Lord. You don't need to be an ascetic. You don't need to beat yourself and lash yourself. Luther, on one occasion before he found salvation in the Roman Catholic monastery at Wittenberg, was it? He, he, on one occasion he didn't turn up. He didn't arrive at the, at the, at the service. And they said, where's Luther? What's happened to Luther? And they went and found him in the monastic cell, and he was unconscious on the ground. He had lashed himself into unconsciousness. He'd beaten his body so much that finally he collapsed and collapsed on the ground. People doing all sorts of things, struggling to find God. My friends, you don't have to struggle to find God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You don't need to go through this kind of agony and... Uh, and uh, doing all sorts of things to get to know the Lord. No, no. We are justified by faith without the law. We're actually saved by doing nothing. The Bible says that. To him who does nothing. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To him who does nothing, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly. You're ungodly and you do nothing. But you believe in God's Savior. To him who does nothing, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly. 
His faith is reckoned as righteousness. You don't have to do a thing. You, salvation is by receiving something. It's totally passive. You receive salvation that the Lord gives you. You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved and you have a, a rock, a foundation on which to stand. And then you can begin to work out your salvation. And then, then you're not passive. When, when, once, once you are saved, you don't, you don't stay passive and doing nothing forever. Then you start doing things. You work out your salvation. You start serving the Lord. You become active. You become alive. You were dead before. Dead people can't do anything. But once, once, you, once you've believed in Jesus, spiritually, you come alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God has quickened you. He's made you alive. He's seated you in the heavenly places. You are alive unto God. Reckon yourself to have died to sin. You're finished with that realm, and you're alive unto God now. You can participate. You can take, you can take, a, take part. You can be involved in working out your salvation. So I keep on emphasizing, I don't want you to carry on listening to me until you've got the foundation firm. You must be on this foundation. You must be building your life upon the rock. Don't work, try to work things out until you've got something to stand upon. And then you're ready to work out your salvation. So then, what, do, what does this mean? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, I'm not always here. Sometimes I'm not even around at all. But I want to hear about you, and I want to hear that you are, uh, are working at, at being a Christian. Even when I'm not around, don't, don't just wait for me to be here. Work out, he says, Paul the Apostle, work out your salvation. God is at work in you, and he's getting his will done through you. So, so what is involved then? Can, can, I, can I produce a list? I'm not sure that I can, but I'll try. Can, can I produce a list then of what is involved in working out your salvation. Well, let me put a few things before you. You might be able to think of one or two, one or two more, in which case you can come and tell me. But I would say it all begins with continuing. Have you ever noticed that the, the New Testament way of uh, talking about working out your salvation is to continue in what God gave you when you were saved? Remember how it's put in Colossians. Colossians puts it like this. Colossians, uh, the Colossians were tempted to all sorts of weird things, a bit, a bit like the, uh, the monastics and the mystics. But uh, Paul says that you should think of it like this. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, Colossians 2.6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, do you follow that? As you received Jesus, how did you, how did you begin? Well, you, you simply received something. You weren't working or doing or, or uh, uh, working for salvation. You simply received the Lord Jesus Christ, and so you were put in him. You were joined onto the Lord Jesus Christ. You became a partaker of everything that is in Jesus. If he is finished with sin, you've finished for sin. If he's in the heavenly places, you're in the heavenly places with him. If, he, if he's uh, hidden, you can't see him, then your life is hid with Christ in God. Everything that he has, you have. You are in Christ. And so all you have to do now is continue in him. Work out this position that you've got in Jesus. In other words, it's a matter of continuing from where God put you when you were saved. Have you ever noticed that when you get saved, you get everything right? 
You regard yourself as, as unable to save yourself. You, you see that Jesus is your only hope. You, you, you're not very proud of yourself. You come as a sinner. You love everybody everywhere. You're not, you're not against everybody. You're not in any position to be against anybody. And you just come simply, humbly, nothing in your hands, not, you're not bringing anything to God, and you're simply depending on Jesus as the Savior. That's how you began. Now, as you receive the Lord, now just, just stay that way. Just continue trusting, continue regarding yourself as, as nobody very special, continue just re- regarding yourself as, as needing Jesus' grace. Just go with those things that you learned when you first began. And so Scripture is always telling us just to continue. Continue in faith. These things that we think of as, uh, as, as the things that save us, we repent, we believe, we trust in Jesus. These things that, that uh, we learn in our first salvation, now we have to, to go with them. We have to continue with them. You carry on believing. Uh, Scripture is always telling us, continue to believe. Hold fast the, the first, your first confidence, says Hebrews. We continue in the position that God put us in. We continue to repent. Repentance is not just uh, something that, that, that comes into your life when you get saved. You make mistakes. You, you do things that are wrong. And uh, you, you find yourself being dealt with by God. And you have to repent all over again. You, you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Corinthians had made, made bad mistakes in their relationship with Paul. And, uh, but then they, they, were, they were sorry about it. And Paul describes it. He says, uh, I'm really glad that you, you've repented. What earnestness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 11. What earnestness. What earnestness got this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. These people, they were regretting what they did. They said, oh, Paul, Paul we, had, we hadn't done that. They're so enthusiastic to, to get things right. They're even punishing themselves, not, not in a monastic way, but uh, dealing with the mistakes they made. What, what enthusiasm you've got to, to correct yourself, to learn that you made a mistake. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent. He's describing Christians... Repenting when they make a mistake. And they're angry with themselves and they're saying, how can I do anything like that? We have to continue in repentance. Repentance is not just for, 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 for your first salvation. You continue in repentance. Think of Psalm 51. David had been a believer for many, many years when he sinned with Bathsheba. And uh, he was a mature man, the king, when he fell into sin in that way. So he'd been... He'd been a believer for, for decades when he sinned and the armies of Israel were damaged and Uriah's, Uriah was killed and so on. When David did that uh, terrible thing, he'd been a believer for many years. And you know the story of how Nathan got to him and said, you're the man. And uh, David, David said, oh yes, right, you're right, I've sinned. And then he wrote and he went out and he wrote Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Put a new and a right spirit within me. Here's a man repenting and, and sorry about what he's done. 
He's been a believer for decades, but he has to come back and continue in, in, as it were, correcting himself. We continue in repentance. We continue in faith. You remember how often the Bible has things to say about losing our faith? Not that we ever lose it completely, but you remember the disciples getting panicky in the boats when a storm came upon them. And Jesus stands up and he says, peace be still. And then he turns to them and says, what, what happened to your faith? Where, where is your faith? Where has he gone to? I thought you were believing, but you were believers. What's happened to your faith? He rebukes them because temporarily they seem to have lost their faith. No, no, we're not to lose our faith, not even temporarily. We are to persist, we are to go on. No matter what happens to us, we are to go on believing. When, when we find ourselves in opposition, we go on believing. When we find that the promises of God are delayed... Sometimes God promises something and nothing happens. God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son and have thousands of, of children. He said God to Abraham, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as, as the grains of sand upon the seashore, so shall your seed be. The only trouble is, Abraham couldn't have number one. Sarah was barren. She, she couldn't have one baby. Here's, here's God promising thousands of children to Abraham, and Sarah can't have one baby. And the years go by, five years, ten years, and uh, Abraham goes into Hagar. That, that was not a good idea, and uh, didn't, bring, didn't do him any good. It wasn't the promise. And then 20 years go by, and finally, he's in the court of Abimelech, and he's praying for other people's wives, so to have babies, you know the story in Genesis chapter 20? He's praying for other people's wives to have babies, but his own wife has not had a baby for 20 years. The promises of God can be delayed. You can wait for years for something that you know is God is calling you to. But uh, when there's delay, you go on believing. When there's opposition, you go on believing. When you find yourself in weakness, you say, well, Lord, I really don't think I can do this. Remember, Jesus is touched with the feeling of our weaknesses and you go on believing. You believe that what God is promising to you, it's still going to happen. You're still going to, you're still going to work out your salvation. You go on believing when there's weakness, when there's opposition, when there's delay. You go on believing. God gets upset with us if we lapse in faith. Take care, brethren, lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall from the living God. I, you, you keep on hearing me say, you don't lose your salvation. But the fact that you don't lose your salvation does not mean you cannot temporarily become unbelieving and, and lose contact with the living God. And for the moment, God's not really working in your life. That can happen. Don't let it happen. Don't take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. You draw back in unbelief when there's trouble. Think, oh no, I think, I think God can't do this anymore. And, and you give up. No, no. How shall we, 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 not they, but we, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We, we neglect what God is wanting to do, think, or we give up because of unbelief or opposition or difficulty, or we find ourselves to be so weak, we think, we, no, I don't think I can do this. How shall we escape? Escape what? Escape the chastisement, escape God, God's displeasure. You can even lose your reward. You don't lose your salvation, but you could lose your reward. You could lose what God's wanting to give you. You cannot lose what God has given you, but you can lose what God wants to give you. That's the principle. Don't become unbelieving. Continue. Continue in love. And uh, Hebrews especially is always 
making this point. It's the whole, it's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't draw back. Don't fall away. Not, not in the sense of falling away from salvation, but falling away from fellowship with the Lord, falling away from persisting in faith. We are God's house, says Hebrews, if we are God's house, if we hold fast our confidence, if we go on believing, if we hold fast what we've been boasting in, what we're proud of in, in, in the Lord. We experience the privilege of being God's holy tabernacle with God using us and being being a witness to him. If we hold on to our confidence, otherwise you don't lose your salvation, but you do lose the, your, your function as a witness to the grace of God, says Hebrews. Don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, says, says Hebrews. Don't give up coming into fellowship. Hold on to your first confidence. Don't, uh, don't fall into sin. And then when God speaks to you, 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 you keep on sinning until you finally you're sinning deliberately. And then there's nothing but a fiery expectation of judgment. Don't throw away your confidence, which... Which what? Don't throw away your confidence, which, which, which what? Which will get you really saved? No. Don't throw away your confidence, which proves that you really are born again? No. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What you're going after is not salvation. What you're going after is reward. Don't throw away your faith. Don't throw away your confidence. It has a rich reward. God will bless you. You'll, you'll, you'll inherit something if you hold on to your faith. So the great message of um, working out your salvation, first of all, is continuing. It's persisting. It's continuing to handle problems, Repent over mistakes you're making. Continue to believe. Continue to go after what you believe is the calling of God upon your life. Continue. And then secondly, what is this working out your salvation? Well, it's something that takes place by the word. It takes place by the word of God. Remember, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, Lord, sanctify them, purify them, get them to be living holy lives. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John chapter 17, verse 17. The, the pathway, the, the route along which we go to work out our salvation is the route of hearing God speak to us. God sanctifies us by his words. And again, you, you get this all the way through Hebrews Take care, brethren, says his Hebrews. Today, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Jesus said the same thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's three types of people. Some people don't have ears. They're not even saved. They don't even have ears at all, spiritually. And when you get saved, you have, you're given ears. You can, you can now begin to hear God. But even when you have ears, you might not be listening at the moment. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, that's his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. You're hearing me. You understand. Now, don't just sort of stop there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What we have to do is to go on hearing God. God has to continue to speak to us. It's not just, it's partly reading the Bible, but it's not just that, because you can read the Bible but still see and not hear God. It's when you... You're reading your Bible in a particular way, and you're hearing God's voice. Sometimes God can speak to you without the Bible. Uh, there are people who don't believe that, but uh, there in Scripture, you remember 
The Spirit said to Philip, go join yourself to that chariot. That was not a verse. It wasn't. Hezekiah 3.16 says, if you see a chariot, join it. It, it, it's 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 not a scripture. It's the direct voice of the Spirit. Spirit can speak to you directly. He, doesn't, he never contradicts Scripture, but he can speak to you directly. But in one way or another, we are to be able to hear God's voice. Today, if you hear his voice, and the writer says, if, because maybe you don't. Christians can get hard of heart. They can get to the point where they're spiritually deaf, and then they, they make no progress. They get stuck. You get, you get to the point where you can't hear God. I always feel very sorry for Eli. You know the story of Eli and little boy Samuel? And Samuel hears, he literally hears a voice. In the middle of the night, he hears a, he hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel. And he wakes up and he, and he goes to Eli. Eli, did you call me? No, he says, Eli, you're dreaming. Go back to sleep. And then a few minutes later, the voice comes again. Samuel, Samuel, and it happens three times. On the third time, Samuel, Eli realizes that something's happening, something very special. And he says to Samuel, well, next time it happens, just, just answer the voice and say, speak, Lord, your servant is hearing. And Samuel is spoken to by God. But here's the thing which I, I think is terrible. The message that little boy Samuel gets is about Eli. But God is not speaking to Eli, he's speaking to Samuel. Even though the message is about Eli, it's not Eli hearing the voice. He has got hard. He's not dealing with his children. You, you know the story, I trust. There's all sorts of things going on. The, the, the sanctuary is about to be destroyed. Ichabod, the glory is departed. Eli has, has offended God, and God has stopped speaking to him. Even, and when God's got a message to Eli, he doesn't give it to him straight. He gives it to little boy Samuel. And Samuel has to tell Eli what the message is. God has stopped speaking directly to Eli. I always felt very sorry for Eli. It's a terrible thing when God stops speaking to you. The only way he ever does speak to you is maybe through somebody else. Somebody speaks to you and tells you, but God's not speaking to you anymore. Somebody else has to come and say, well, you know, God, God really tells me you ought to be doing this. Today, if you, you yourself, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, says the scripture. So Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the godly life is is a matter of hearing God. It's largely through the scriptures, although it's not exclusively through the scriptures. It's largely through God showing you things, revealing you things. And uh, if you ever have a system of Bible study. Do you have a system of Bible study? Do you have any kind of routine? It always seems to me, I don't know that I could prove this, but uh, I don't think I could prove it from the Bible, but uh, it always seems to me that when you have a system, that God uses the system. I have a, a daughter, Tina, some of you know her, who loves Daily Light. You know the little book called Daily Light? I don't love it. I mean, this, looking up texts every day, that's not my style at all. I do not read Daily Light. But I have a daughter who does. And I'm always amazed that when she's in trouble, it's always the exact reading of that day is always the answer to her, her difficulties. I'm always amazed how, how the Lord speaks to the very reading of that day in Daily Light. The Lord doesn't do that for me, and I'm glad he doesn't because I wouldn't like it if he did. But, uh, 
But on the other hand, all my, all my years, I've tended to use a Bible reading system that's in the American Standard Version of the Bible of 1901. I often use the system in that Bible. And I've often found when I'm in trouble, I go and read the, the, the daily reading in that book of that on that day. And I'm always amazed. You'll find that if you have some way of reading Scripture, I believe you'll find, that if you have some sort of regular way of reading Scripture, that uh, you're always in the right place at the right time. That the very sort of thing that's appointed you for that day will, will speak to you. And it seems to me the Lord does it differently for different people. And I've found the same thing with preaching. You, you, work, you, you work through a book of the Bible. And you're just preaching through Romans or something. And you get to some place and you are at the exact right passage on the right day. The greatest example I ever had of that was the famous 9-11. You remember 9-11, 11th of September 2001? I was preaching through Isaiah. And I, I was going, walking down the Africa, Africa, preaching through Isaiah. I was in the Bread of Life Fellowship in Lusaka. You know Joe Imakando. You know Joe Imakando. I was preaching in Joseph Imakando's church on Isaiah one, and then somewhere else in chapter two, and chapter three, and chapter four. I got to I got to chapter ten when I was in Cape Town, and on the first, on the eleventh of September two thousand and one, I was about to preach on Isaiah ten. You know Isaiah 10, Ho, Assyria, rod of my anger. I, be, I prepared a sermon on one nation being a rod of anger to lash another nation. One wicked nation being used of God to deal with another nation. Ho, Assyria, rod of my anger. And, and in the afternoon, South Africa time, suddenly on television comes the events of 9-11. One hour later, I'm preaching on Ho Assyria, rod of my anger, the very, the very uh, theme of one nation, wicked nation, dealing with another wicked nation. Everybody thought I prepared a brilliant sermon for the occasion. Actually, I prepared it before the thing happened. You'll find you're in the right place at the right time. If you have a way of reading Scripture, if you're a preacher, a way of preaching Scripture that's regular and orderly, you will be amazed at how God uses it. The very thing that you need for that day well, as it would be in your reading for that day. Have a system and work through Scripture and let God speak to you. Hear his voice. It's not just reading the text. It, it's a bit like what happened to the two apostles, the, the, the two, the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus who were miserable because Jesus had just been crucified and they meet, they meet the risen Jesus, only they don't know who it is. And he says to them, what's wrong with you? Why are you looking so miserable? And they say, haven't you heard about Jesus? We had hoped that he would have been the one to redeem Israel. We've given up now. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. We've given up all hope of him. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And Jesus says to them, oh, you fools, slow of heart to read all that the prophets wrote and spoke. And he opens the Bible. He, he, he goes through the Bible. Uh, he, I don't think he was carrying scrolls. He has it all in his head. He, he, he starts quoting scripture. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he goes through all of the scriptures, showing them the things concerning himself. They were reading the Bible with Jesus beside them. That's the model for Bible reading. You read the Bible with Jesus beside you, talking to you, showing you himself in all of the scriptures. That's the way to read your Bible. You read the Bible in the presence of Jesus, with Jesus himself showing you in all of the scriptures, the things concerning 
himself. You read the Bible in the presence of God. You read scripture and you let God speak to you, teach you, show you things you didn't know. You struggle. Sometimes you struggle and you wrestle because you can't understand something. And you wrestle maybe for ages. And then one day you see it and the whole Bible comes alive to you. Sanctify them through your word. It is the word, it is the voice of God that's, that cleanses you, purifies you, changes your life. Get into scripture. Uh, do, it, do it corporately. I, I think we, sh- we tend to think of this in a very individualistic way. I'm not sure that we should. I, I believe it's more important to do this together than, than, than it is on our own. And remember that until the inventing of printing, there was no other way of reading the Bible. And the idea of reading your Bible on your own is a kind of modern idea. When was printing invented? 14-something, 14, 14 15 something And uh, there were no printed Bibles before the 15th century. Nobody read the Bible on their own for the first 1,400 years of the Christian church. And if you read Calvin's Institutes, if you ever read Calvin's Institutes, you can get to heaven without reading Calvin's Institutes, but if you ever read Calvin's Institutes, you might be surprised to discover he never mentions reading the Bible. And then if you think a little bit and ask yourself how expensive were Bibles in the 16th century, you'll realize why. I mean, I mean, who had a chance to read their Bible on their own? Luther, in his early years seeking the Lord, never read his Bible. He couldn't. There was no such thing as reading your Bible. In Britain, nobody had Bibles until about the 16th century. And they were in Latin. They couldn't read them anyway. I mean, the idea of reading your Bible for the first 1,500 years of the Christian church, it was almost impossible. And when Bibles first began to, to be read in, in this country, in Britain, King Henry VIII, he would put a Bible in the parish church. There would be one Bible in the parish church, and it would be chained to the reading desk. You couldn't, take, you couldn't take it away. It would be chained to the desk. And if you wanted to read your Bible, you went to the parish church, and you read it, and that Bible would be chained there. There would be one for the entire parish of maybe 10,000 people. So reading your Bible on your own is a very modern, is a relatively modern thing. And of course, if you read your Bible in English, and you probably do, you're already relying on somebody else. There's already somebody who's translated it for you. Very important, write in English, but believe it or not, he did not write the authorized version, King James. Uh, that wasn't by Paul. <laughs> and uh, you're already depending upon somebody and, and in fellowship with some, trans- some guy who's translated it for you. You're already in fellowship with somebody else. You're already reading the Bible corporately, even if you're reading it in English. And now we should read our Bibles together. We help each other. And that's why there's preachers. Preachers are meant to pioneer and, and open up the way. Sometimes you're just remembering what the preacher says. If preachers go through the Bible, the people remember that, that you've been through Philippians or Galatians and they remember what you said a little bit. Not, not all that much, but a little bit. So Bible reading could be corporate and... Uh, this is what we should do in small fellowship groups. We shouldn't just pray, we should read scripture as well in, in, in small fellowship groups. And we ask each other, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? And maybe we look at each other and none of us know what it means. And go and ask the pastor or something and, and he doesn't know either. And, and we, we all sort of explore until we find out. We're helping each other. This is the way to come under the word of God. We need to grow in the word of God. So we're sanctified by the word. God speaks to us. And then, so, so really that, that brings me on to the next thing. We, we maintain fellowship. We grow together in fellowship. Nobody is, is any good at working out his salvation, his or her salvation, if we live an isolated life. You may be a sort of an independent person, so, so am I. I, was, I was an only child. I've always been independent. 
I was sitting in a cafe once in Nairobi, having my lunch. And in, in Kenya, in cafes, we talk to each other, unlike Britain. And uh, the lady in the table next door said to me, you must be an only child. You didn't have any brothers and sisters. And I said, yeah, you're right. How did you, how did, how did you know that? She said, even the way you eat is like an only child. <laughs> you're so independent. You ignore the way to do this. You're all sort of self-contained. You must be an only child. I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, you may be a bit of an independent guy, but don't be too independent. You need other people. Easy to sin when you're on your own. Not so easy to sin when you're with people. Easy to sin when you don't ever adv- ask advice. Think something you ought not to do. If you ask one person, you know, I'm going to do this. Oh, no, you shouldn't do that. If you ask one person, he tells you to stop. If something can't pass the test of, of, of your consulting your friends, it's probably not right. Stay in fellowship together. Share things together. Not very British. Britishers like this isolated life and only children do it even more. But... Uh, most of the world, people do things together. In the New Testament times, they did things together. When, when, Paul, when Paul wrote Colossians, nobody had a little Bible, went home and read his Bible on his own. They, they would take the letter, the one and only letter, they would take it to the church, and that someone would read the letter. We've got, a le- we've got a letter from Paul, they would say. And everybody would be there, and Colossians, or whatever it was, would be, would be read to the church. And they'd be reading it together. And Paul says, when you get this letter, when this letter has been read among you, make sure it's read also among the Laodiceans, and see that you read the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans. They're publicly reading all these letters of Paul. We still should be doing that. We should read things in public and we share it with our friends and we ask advice. Stay in fellowship together. Have someone to pray with. Even, even though you're a bit of an independent person, all right, I understand that. But, uh, but still, don't be too independent. You must have fellowship. You must be in fellowship groups. And when we, when we build churches, it's important to have more than one type of meeting in churches. We, we have public meetings, we have sun, our big Sunday gatherings, but every church, I don't know what happens here, you can tell me, but, uh, but every church must have smaller groups as well as the big ones. You have small groups where the pastor's not there, where you're meeting just as, as brothers and sisters. Those, those meetings are as important as the big public meetings with the preacher. And in, in the New Testament... You didn't get one pastor who did everything and he lectured you and preached to you and you didn't do anything without him. That's, that's not biblical, is it? In Scripture, Christians are in and out of each other's homes. They, they're, seeing, they're seeing each other every day. In the book of Acts, they're meeting daily. You, you may say, how did they do it? These guys in the early church, they're, they're slaves. They're not, they're not important people. They're, they're busy people. They're they're, if they're a slave, they're owned by somebody. How did, they ever, how did they ever find the time to meet every single day? They went daily to the temple. How did they do it? Which the answer is, we don't know, but they did. They somehow got together daily. Uh, there was a time in Nairobi, I don't think it's true anymore, but there was a time in Nairobi when Christians met much more than they do nowadays. And uh, the, the various fellowship groups of the churches were sort of all muddled up. The, the, the Christians didn't so much meet in churches as, as in streets. This, this street would have a, a fellowship group where everybody in that, in that street would go to their fellowship group, no matter what church they came from. And on one occasion, I went to, uh, I was pastor of Nairobi Baptist Church, 
And on one occasion, I went to one of our fellowship groups. There were many of them, about 50, 60 of them. And I sat down next to some guy, and I said, I said, hi, how, how, I don't know you, who are you? And he said, I'm, I'm the bishop of Mount Kenya. Oh, oh really? Uh, and who are you? And, you know, I'm, the, I'm the rural dean of this place. And suddenly I realized I was in an Anglican fellowship group. It wasn't one of mine. <laughs> the fellowship groups of the Christians were so muddled up that you could go to one of your church fellowship groups and find out it belonged to another church. They were all sort of so muddled up and confused. You never knew quite which one was yours and which one was somebody else's. But it was a great system. The Christians of Nairobi all knew each other. You knew all of the Christians down your street, down your road. Even if you came from different churches, you all had some meeting. You didn't even know who owned that fellowship group. Those were good days. I think we've lost them a bit. But we need smaller fellowship. One-to-one, people who will pray with us. Little groups of five, six, seven, eight, ten. When they get bigger than 20, they're getting too big. We need the small meetings. And when you find revival, one of the first things that happens in revival is that the Christians are meeting each other all the time. When the Methodist movement came to Britain in the 1730s, immediately Wesley set up these classes, the class system of Methodism. And uh, it was Wesley who organized that. He was a great organizer. And it changed Britain. All these, all these humble Christians just meeting together without the preachers, without, without the big guys, just meeting in fellowship together. We must have small, close fellowship. You're missing something. If you're trying to live an isolated life, you will not grow. You'll not be laying hold of salvation. You'll not, you'll not be working out your salvation. And you, you pray together, you read scripture together, you do a lot together, you all know each other. For never mind about what churches you come from, if you know Jesus, everybody's nearby, invite your neighbors, whatever it is. Uh, I'm not laying down rules or methods for you. But you, we must be in close fellowship as well as the public meetings. It's one of the snags of big churches. Some people join big churches because they don't want to be closely involved with anybody. I joined some church with 5,000 people there, and they, they go and sit in. Nobody knows who they are, and they just keep quiet. And, uh, and they say, well, yeah, that's my church. But they, they never, ever meet people. And they like it that way. They, they, they want to sort of be isolated and on their own and independent. But those people are always weak. They don't, they don't achieve much for the Lord. And they fall into sin. Nobody even knows. Even when they're sick, nobody knows. They, 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 they come to church for six weeks, nobody even notices. They're not even missed. No, no, we mustn't have the kind of life where we are trying to be isolated. Fellowship, forsaking not, Hebrews 10.25, forsaking not, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. So I'm just trying to list for you these things that are involved in working out your salvation. You continue in grace, you continue in faith, you continue in repentance, you continue in fellowship, you're sanctified by the word, you maintain fellowship with other Christians, you maintain fellowship with Jesus. I'll come back to that separately on its own from one John. You, you, you seek to find your calling. God, God has got a plan for your life. He's, he's calling you to something. There are good works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. There are good works which the Lord has before ordained that you should walk in them. There are things that God has planned for you. They are foreordained. Before you were born, God made you in a certain way that you might do certain things for him. And uh, we are we're not saved by our good works, but once we are saved... We are saved for good works, which the Lord has before ordained 
that we should walk in them. He does the planning, we do the walking. There are things in your life that God wants you to do. You may say to me, how do I know what those things are? And I answer, they will manifest themselves. The Bible, the Bible talks about the manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit shows himself. You'll find these things will just appear. If you have a gift of singing, you'll just be singing. If you have a gift of preaching, you'll be preaching to everybody, whether they like it or not. If you have a gift of organizing, you'll always be organizing people, and people get irritated with you because you organize them so much. These things just, they come out, they just show themselves. The manifestation of the Spirit, they just show themselves. And you find the things that you do very easily, and you can't quite understand why everybody else can't, can't do them so easily. You see, a gift doesn't feel like a gift to you. To you, it's just being normal. To you, it's just you being yourself. You don't even think of it as a gift. And uh, when, when other people, you look at other people, you say, you know, why, why can't you do this? You know, you're, you're, you're puzzled that they can't do what you can do. Because for you, it's not being gifted, it's just, it's just being normal and natural. And so you're puzzled that other people can't do it. In fact, this is a problem. People often uh, who have gifts, one of, their, one of the difficulties is they always expect people to do what they can do. I, I have, I'm a great admirer of, admirer of George Muller, the famous uh, Christian brother of the 19th century who started orphanages in uh, Bristol. Amazing, amaz- amazing man of prayer. Yeah, do you know the story of George Muller? He just had the most amazing gift of faith and prayerfulness. You get these amazing stories about his faith. And there was a time when in the orphanage at Bristol, there were 200, about 200 children, and they had no money and no breakfast. There was no food in the larder, and there was no money, and it was breakfast time, and there were 200 children there waiting for their breakfast. If I was in charge of, a, of an orphanage and I had no money and no food and 200 children waiting for breakfast, I think I'd be a bit nervous. You know what Muller did? He gave thanks. Lord, thank you for this breakfast. He, he, gave, he gave thanks. He, gave, he said grace uh, as, as the children were sitting before these empty, on these empty tables. And as Muller was saying grace, there came a knock on the door. And two people were outside waiting, trying to get in, knocking on the door. One of them had cash in his hand. Mr. Muller, you know, the Lord really told me that I should bring some cash. I should have done it yesterday, but, uh, but I forgot. And the Lord told me, I, remember, I must really do it now. So, so I've come. Here it is. The other guy was the traveling lorry of guy going from house to house in his, in his 19th century van selling food. The money and the food arrived together as he was saying grace. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I don't have to live that way. I would not like to live that way. <laughs> It was his gift. He, he, he could do these things. On one occasion, he was due to cross the Atlantic uh, on a boat, a 19th century boat that took two or three weeks to get across the Atlantic. And he was due to preach in New York. But uh, there was a big fog in Southampton, and the boat was delayed. And he went to the captain, and he said, well, you know, don't, don't, do you believe in prayer? Do you, do you think we could pray about this and, and pray that the fog will go away? And the captain said, yeah, you're all right. And so Muda said, okay, let's pray. And uh, so they prayed. And Mula prayed, Lord, please disperse this fog so that we can sail. And then he opened his eyes and they stopped the praying. And he looked at the captain. And he said to the captain of the boat, 
you don't believe that God could do this. I believe he already has. And they walked to the window and the fog had gone. <laughs> now that was Muller, you see, he had this gift. But I have one criticism, I have one criticism of the great George Muller. The great criticism is, he, th- he thought everybody could do this. He, if you could not do this, he didn't think much of you. He thought every Christian should be living this way. And uh, that's the trouble with gifted people. They always think that uh, their particular gift, for them, it's not a gift anyway. It's easy for them, that's their gift. And so they, they tend to think that everybody can live the way they can live. That's how you know you have your gift. When there's something that you do with ease and you wonder why other people can't do it, you're not even struggling. It's easy for you. This is the way you are. You may be very hospitable. You may love children. You, you may be so compassionate that when you see any kind of uh, suffering, you start breaking down and weeping. You're, you're so distressed when you, when you see something that, that where, where others are suffering. That means you have a gift of compassion. You're always wanting to give your money away. You have a gift of giving. You're always wanting to, to, to teach and instruct people. You have a gift of teaching. You're always wanting to urge people, exalt them to get moving in God, you have a gift of exhortation. The gifts show themselves. You're always singing. Everybody likes your singing. They don't like your singing. You don't have a gift of singing. But uh, <laughs> the gifts show themselves. Find your gift. Find what the calling. It may be big. It may be little. Maybe some very small thing. It may be a gift of intercession. You just you just are so burdened to be for people. You pray for them such a lot. Nobody else knows. You have a gift of intercession. Find your calling. There are good works. Work out your salvation. Get your salvation moving. Get it achieving something. Get it doing something. And that will involve finding your calling and going after it. I want to lay hold. That verse I quoted already. I want to lay hold of that thing for which God laid hold of me. He got hold of me that I might achieve something for him. Find your calling. The good works which God before ordained that you should do them. Find them. Find out what they are. And uh, lastly, a matter of following your instincts, following your desires. When someone comes and says, says, what can I do for the Lord? The answer is, what do you want to do for the Lord? What is it that you would like to do? What is it that your heart desires? Because the Lord puts desires upon our hearts and then he gives us the desires of our hearts. The things that we want to do anyway, he gives them to us. God came to Samuel, to, to Solomon, and said, Solomon, you can ask for anything. Just tell me what you want, I'll give it to you. That was a risky offer, don't you think? But God knew Solomon. And Solomon said, oh, I can tell you what I want. You've just made me the king. More than anything in the world, I want to be given the wisdom that I might be able to be a good king. And God said, oh, I'm glad you prayed that. That's what I want to give you. God gave Solomon the very thing that he wanted, Hannah wanted a baby boy. He wanted a, she wanted more than anything a little baby boy. And one day she was in such distress, and, and you know the story, she prays, and she says to God, Lord, if only you'll give me a little baby boy, I'll give him to you. He can work full time at the temple. That's the exact thing that God wanted. He needed someone to start all over again, get rid of the house of Eli and start all over again. He needed a little boy to start from zero. The very thing that God wanted and the very thing that Hannah wanted, they're the same. And that's what God will do for you. The desire of your heart, you'll find it's the very thing that God's wanting to do through you. Go after it, let it manifest itself. Take the first step and be yourself. Don't try to copy anybody. You're, you're, the one thing you do better than anybody else is to be yourself. Nobody's as good as being you than you. You are the best person in the world at being you. Don't try and be anybody else, be yourself. Find your gifts and work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling because God takes this very seriously. God is in you to will and to work for his, his good pleasure. You're achieving something. You're doing something in the kingdom of God. You're working out your salvation. And everything you ever do for the Lord, he blesses it, he rewards it, and you get rewarded twice. Did you know that? You get rewarded twice. You get rewarded here, and also you, it's laid up in treasure in heaven as well. You get it again when you get to heavenly glory. You get rewarded now. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says it even now. He blesses you even now. And happiness is, is being in the will of God and achieving things that are God's will along, along the lines in which you're made. You'll never be more happy than when you're being yourself along the lines that God has ordained for you. So there's a kind of reward immediately. I don't mean that life is always easy. I don't mean, I'm not saying that. But it's, it's happy. It's joyful. You know you are where you're meant to be. And you get it all over again when you get to heaven. And the Lord says to you, everything you ever did for me, not a cup of cold water, even in the name of Jesus, will lose its reward. Every single thing you ever do for Jesus is laid up as treasure in heaven. And one day it all comes back to you again. And the Lord says to you again, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how you work out your salvation, we're being saved. We're being rescued from our old wicked ways and we're, and we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen.